All right, and we are rolling. We are back with another edition of Exploring Faith and Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And today we are joined by two very, very special guests that we are excited to have on our program. We are joined by Pastor Don McKenzie and Jamal Rahman. Did I say your name right, brother? Sure, sure. And I'm Imam Jamal. My title Imam. is Imam. Fantastic. Well, Imam Jamal and Pastor Don, we are thrilled to have you guys on. You are two of the three of what are what's referred to or what you guys refer to yourself as is the interfaith amigos. And you guys specialize in interfaith relations across religious boundaries, you might say. And uh, Brother Jamal is a popular speaker on Islam, Sufi spirituality, and interfaith relations. And along with the Interfaith Amigos, he's been featured in the New York Times, CBS News, the BBC, and various NPR programs. Uh, Jamal is the co-founder and Muslim Sufi minister at Interfaith Community Sanctuary and adjunct faculty at Seattle University. And he is a former co-host of Interfaith Talk Radio and travels nationally and internationally and presents at retreats and workshops and just generally all over the place. Uh, Pastor Don McKenzie, Ph.D., lives in Minneapolis and has devoted himself to interfaith work after retiring as a minister and head of staff at Seattle's University Congregational United Church of Christ. Previously, Pastor Don served as congregations in Hanover, New Hampshire, um, in Princeton, New Jersey. He was ordained in 1970 and graduated from McAllister College, Princeton Theological Seminary, and New York University. Uh, his, interf- his interest in interfaith work began while a student at McAllister and continued while living and teaching in Sidon, Lebanon in the year prior to the Six-Day War in 1967. Um, you're also a part of a country music band, Life's Other Side, and recorded the soundtrack for the documentary film Family Name and has sung at the Ernest Tubb Midnight Jamboree at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. So that is a lengthy introduction from two or for two very, very <laughs> special guests that we are thrilled to have. So thank you guys so much for taking times out of your lives and out of your schedule to join us and have a conversation tonight. Well, thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thank you. Um, so what we understand, Lee and Kevin, is that you'd like us to talk about what Christian people need to know about Islam. Yes, sir. That yeah. is the subject that we reached out to you guys about because our podcast is one that explores various aspects of the Christian faith. It's one where we examine various doctrines and we do so through the lens of our own religious upbringing within the more fundamentalist and conservative churches of Christ. And this podcast has more or less been a public deconstruction of our previous more legalistic faith as we have endeavored to pursue a more grace-centered and Christ-centered approach to faith. But even in that, we recognize that there are other faith systems that exist apart from Christianity that we share a lot of the same uh, ancestry with, you might say. And certainly the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they're all cousins to each other, we might say. And whenever Kevin suggested that we have you guys on to discuss Islam and what Christians should know about Islam. I thought it was a great idea. And the fact that you guys agreed to be on just thrilled my heart. So yeah, I'm really yeah. excited to have you guys. Well, and I, you know, I first heard about you at our church during Bible class at Day Spring Church of Christ. And they had played one of the TED Talks that you all were on. 
And I just thought it was phenomenal what you're about, what you're trying to do with creating respectful dialogue, because that's what we're all about. Uh, we're wanting to not debate, but have open dialogue. We want to learn from each other. We want to learn how to love people better, especially when we don't agree. Uh, how can we still have respectful conversations? How can we still be kind to one another? How can we still see people as people instead of just trying to put everyone in a box based upon their views, especially when we do disagree with them? And so instead of us talking about Islam, uh, why don't we not actually have someone on who is Islamic, <laughs> someone who knows what they're talking about? And that's one thing Lee and I have talked about a lot on this program is that it's one thing to discuss a view from our perspective. But when you really want to know what a view is all about, go to someone who actually believes that view, who teaches that view, who's educated in that view. And uh, because otherwise I have found and I have done this many times in the past. I've misrepresented a lot of different views because of my misunderstanding and my bias and prejudice of that view. And so our goal is always to have people on who do know what they're talking about, who uh, who, who are well-versed, who are learned in that particular view or belief, whatever it might be. And so tonight, as we discuss Islam, specifically what, what Christians should know about Islam and understanding Islam, um, on, and, and I'm going to tell you just from the start— uh, growing up as a Christian, there wasn't really anything good ever said about Islam. <laughs> it was uh, it was always negative. Uh, in fact, I was joking with my wife before the interview tonight. I said, you know, we're, we're, we're entitling this uh, What Christians Should Know About Islam. I said, and it's not going to be the, the typical Christian uh, lesson uh, that sometimes is is taught and and far too often is heard in a very biased and prejudiced way. And so we're we're thankful that you guys are on this podcast and have agreed to come on. And so we'll just go ahead and and jump right into this. Um, we'll just start if you want to give us a brief history of Islam and specifically from the framework of of speaking to Christians. What should Christians know about the history of Islam? I think, first of all, I want to explain what the word Islam literally means. Uh, the word Islam simply means to surrender in peace. And the question is, uh, what are you surrendering? And the Quran is saying what you're surrendering is your attachment to your ego. The I, 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 me, me, me. So that, as the Quran says, you can bring a heart turned in devotion to God. So about the history of Islam, I should probably start by... Uh, talking about a very phenomenal spiritual event in the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in the year 610 CE, before the birth of Christ, called the Night of Power. Uh, Christians don't know this, but the Prophet Muhammad, even as a child, he used to despair so much of the savagery of his time, of 7th century Arabia, that he would go in the mountains to meditate. So on one fateful night, in the year 610 CE, as he was meditating, he experienced a phenomenal situation where he saw a bright light approaching him and the bright light said, I'm Angel Gabriel. And he was just perspiring and you know, trembling with fear. And the bright light said, Iqra means recite, say something. I'll cut a long story short. He ran down in the arms of his beloved wife, Khadija. He just out of total bewilderment and fear, and she persuaded him to come back after consulting 
with a distant cousin who was blind, but was, was like a seer, who was a Christian actually, who said, I beg you, ask your husband, Muhammad, to go back. He's going to become a prophet or something unusual is going to happen. And his wife Khadija persuaded him to go back. And Muhammad thinking the hallucination was over. He went back to the mountain to meditate in Mecca. But once again, that bright light. Once again, that command, recite. And this time he felt some pain inside of him. And some words came out of his mouth, which were seared into his soul. And this process continued for 23 years. Oh, wow. And the collection of that is called the Quran. And this is the miracle of Islam. Like you're Christians, the miracle of Christianity is that Jesus, peace be upon him, is the son of God. In Islam, the miracle is the Quran, meaning there is no body of Arabic literature. The, the Quran is in Arabic because it happened in the Arabian Peninsula. All the scholars agree, whether they like Islam or not, that there is no body of literature that comes remotely close to the beauty, the majesty, the cadence of the language of the Quran. That is a miracle in Islam. So it has its roots in this particular spiritual phenomena. I mean, Prophet Muhammad died in 632 CE. Uh, Islam spread uh, all over the world. And, uh, but I, I wanted to just clarify that the history of Islam started with the night of power. And after he became a prophet, the prophet began to preach monotheism in, a, in the Arabian Peninsula, which was inundated with paganism. Not so much that they worship these idols, but that they worship money and power. And at that time in the Arab Arabian Peninsula, uh, the, the wonderful, beautiful religions of Christianity and Judaism, they were becoming stagnated, fossilized, just like Islam is happening today. And so Prophet Muhammad said, he declared that, you know, la ilaha illallah, there is no God but God. We have to let go of this attachment to the ego and bring divinity into the center of his life. That is a spiritual explanation of the history of Islam. Now, whenever you put it in those terms, Brother Jamal, I have never heard Islam as a faith expressed or described in that manner. And all of this is, I guarantee you, all this is going to be brand new to me, but that's incredibly interesting. And to hear it put in such beautiful language and to put in such beautiful words that this is a matter of death to self. It's a, it, it describes a death to the ego and releasing those, those earthly attachments. That's definitely something that is held in common with the teachings of Jesus in a lot of ways as well. So in that, we already see some overlap with our different faith traditions. There's, there's definitely some overlap there, and that's incredibly interesting. So what else do you have to share about Islam? I know that's a quick overview, but is there anything else you'd like to share before we talk about a, another facet of this discussion that we were wanting to, uh, to bring about? You're addressing me? Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. Uh, there's one more point I want to make uh, that uh, the professors uh, in the universities in America, 
they tell the students, please understand this. For example, uh, this wonderful professor Bernard Lewis in Princeton, who recently passed away, he said, we should realize in America, in the West that is, that Islam for a thousand years, like Christianity today, for a thousand years, Islam was a privileged religion. Just like Christianity today is a privileged religion. So uh, that Professor Bernard Lewis says, if you ask the question in those thousand years from the sixth, century, uh, sixth century onwards, who had the largest geographical empire? It was the Islamic empire, greatest economic power, greatest military machine. It was the Islamic military machine, Islamic economic power. And what Muslims like to believe was a flourishing of arts and sciences and architecture. But today, if you ask, which are the poorest countries? It's Muslim countries. Yeah. The most illiterate Muslim countries. Uh, largest number of war refugees. Question is, what happened? Well, it's just the way I said it. How did I say it? Islam in those thousand years was number one, number one, number one. What this does in history, we have seen, it creates arrogance and ignorance in the leaders who become close to change and a malaise sets in. You know, there's a wonderful saying, we learn from history that we do not learn from history. And that's the <laughs> message I wanted to say. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, it is happening all over the world now. When there's arrogance, it leads to ignorance. The leaders become averse to change and averse to compassion in the social justice issue, neglect of planetary degradation, and that causes the decline. So we, I, I, what I'm saying this because we should learn this from the history of Islam. Yeah, something else in common with Christianity, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so I, I did want to ask you a question. Uh, we didn't actually have this in the notes. This is just out of curiosity. How fast did did it take for Islam to really take off? Uh, you had mentioned the the growth and the spread, especially after uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, died. But what was the growth? Was it pretty immediate, or was it something that that took a little little while? Because I mean, it's uh, from my understanding, I believe it's the second uh, largest religion in the world, and it's I think correct me if I'm wrong, but the current fastest growing religion in the world, I don't know if that's true or not, but if if, yes. if, if you can maybe unpack that a little bit to talk about the growth of, of Islam and how it, how it spread so quickly. Uh, the growth was absolutely exponential. Uh, in just a few hundred years, it had spread all over the world. And today there are 57 majority uh, Muslim countries. It is the second largest religion in the world, 1.9 billion people. But in 50 years, it is going to become, according to American Pew Research, uh, poll, Gallup poll, that in just a few decades, is, it is definitely going to become the largest uh, religion. And that has aroused some fear. Now, I and Brother Don and Brother Ted, we are not interested actually in converting people. Uh, that becomes, we say, we feel that's an issue of the ego. We are more interested in transformation of our being from, you know, the work of the inner inconvenient work of transforming our ego, opening up our hearts, becoming a more complete, developed human being. 
that, that is our interest. But just to answer your question, the growth was exponential. Uh, and uh, the birth rate, yes, is very high. And the number of conversions is also very high. Uh, and so Islam is, according to all reports, going to become the largest uh, religion in terms of numbers. Uh, and, you know, but that, that is not something that I and the Interfaith Amigos, we focus on at all. Uh, or as I repeat, our focus is the evolvement of the human being to evolve in the fullness of our being as becoming more Christ-like, Allah-like, Buddha-like, Elohim-like. That's our main work. And that's a beautiful work. And that's one of the things that got us really excited to have you on our podcast is because in 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 much in, in a much less elegant way, I know that's that's what Kevin and I have kind of envisioned this podcast to be a vehicle for is the spiritual growth and, and a better sense of spiritual formation and a pursuit of more Christ-like ideals and a pursuit of love as the greatest um, as the greatest mo above every other mo. That's that's ultimately what we would like to accomplish with this podcast as well. And I think that our vision for this, as well as yours within the Interfaith Amigos, it's something that dovetails in together quite nicely. Um, on this same token, though, I, and one of the things that Kevin had said earlier is that in so many ways, Islam is a faith that has been caricatured. It is one that has been decried by various people within various sects of, of faith, within Christianity especially. And I was wondering, Pastor Don, if you don't mind, if you would mind giving us a an overview of what the... Uh, history of the Christian view of Islam has been. I know that this is something that you tend to have some some knowledge in and experience in. So I was wondering if you might be able to share that with our listeners. Sure. Thanks, Lee. I, I have some experience, not massive, but um, and some of what I've learned about Islam, I've learned from Jamal, of course, uh, in the last 20 years. But I think it's important to say that whether we're talking about Islam or Christianity or Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, these are all um, ways of trying to find purpose and meaning in uh, the human experience. And when something seems to give it, uh, give some, when some when something uh, some idea seems to invite people to really get excited about what it's doing in terms of pur purpose and meaning, it really takes off. And I think what you heard from Brother Jamal here about why Islam uh, took off so quickly um, is a good example of that. Of course, Christianity did also. Uh, Christianity was a, a Jewish experience that suddenly became uh, much bigger than that. And, um, and so, you know, we, I think the three of us have always felt that there are things that, um, there are universals that transcend the boundaries of our three traditions. And there are particulars that don't necessarily do that, things that we used to call irreconcilable differences. But I think we're feeling that the word irreconcilable is irrelevant because yeah. those particulars really simply help us to sharpen our own sense of our own traditions and so forth. So. But the problem is that each of our traditions, and especially Christianity and Islam, have said, we are the only way, and we are the best way. 
And so along comes Islam and Christians get their backup. But as you heard Jamal say, in the Arabian Peninsula prior to the prophet, there were Christians and there were Jews and they had already lost their way. I mean, this is what happens to institutions. Um, we start focusing on a few things and we forget substance and spiritual wisdom and so forth. So um, Christianity became um, um, a tradition that opposed Islam. And uh, several large things happened, such as the Crusades, uh, which was an attempt uh, by the Pope in Rome to um, recover Christian control of the holy sites. Um, that was a small part of it. The bigger part was uh, um, uh, an attempt to recover the trade routes that were going through the Middle East. So the real, the larger piece was religion disguised, uh, or money and power disguised as religion. Um, and um, and that went on for several hundred years. Um, and then we have the Inquisition and all the attempts by European countries to expel uh, both um, Muslims and Jews. Uh, I think sometimes they said you can either convert or leave. Um, and then um, since the Inquisition, I would say there has there have been smaller but also very important um, attempts by Christianity and the West in general culturally to say that uh, Islam is inferior, uh, inferior to Christianity and in some, even some respects to Judaism. And, and our sense is that that's all beside the point. That what is important is finding ways to locate the universals that do transcend the boundaries and find ways through those things to cooperate and collaborate in addressing the great moral issues of our time. And so that's why we feel that interfaith dialogue can lead to understanding and it's inter interfaith understanding that's really the key. I mean, dialogue is important, but simply talking is not enough. We want to get to a place of understanding that can lead to collaboration and real, uh, real action. So, um, so there's been a negative view among Christian people of Islam. There's been an ignorant view. Uh, for example, um, I think I was um, probably 55 years old before I realized that the word Muslim, which I grew up understanding to be Muslim, uh, it's Muslim, um, really means one who um, does the will of God. Um, I like the idea of cooperating with God's purposes. And as Jamal is fond of saying, in that sense, we're all Muslims as we're trying to do that. Um, that's maybe a small M, capital M would be different. Um, <laughs> but that's crucial. I mean, I think that, you know, that's, if, I think if you know that much, it's really important. Um, uh, I think, um, you know, Jamal has taught uh, us that the word jihad, uh, which means to make a strong effort, uh, has been um, has been morphed into um, using it as a as a, uh, a method for violence and war and so forth, which is a sub. Would you say sub meaning Jamal of jihad? 
Yeah, is that part of jihad, Brother Don, is, you know, to make the effort to really Struggle. fight for justice. Yeah. Fight for justice. Yeah. So the verse in the Quran is, fight in the way of God, those who fight you, but begin not hostilities, for God loves not the aggressors. That's a direct quote from the Quran. But then you have to use this effort to defend yourself. But Brother Don, please go ahead. Um, well, no, I think that I think the main thing to say is that Christian people have not really had the opportunity to really learn what Islam really is about. Um, and, um, you know, as humanity evolves, um, we move, we hope from a more tribal sensibility that is us against them, that sort of thing. Even nationalism is that in a way to a place where um, we can find ways to cooperate, really. I mean, that's what's what's really so crucial here. And cooperate in ways that provide hope, security, um, inspiration, empathy, and so forth. So, um, well, I think that's enough about that right now. Yeah, well, yeah no. Oh, go ahead, brother. Well, no, I was just going to say thank you so much for, for sharing that, Brother Don, because one thing that I wanted to ask you about is in both you and, and brother Jamal is that the way in which the interfaith amigos came about, um, I, I believe was after nine 11. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. yes. And, yes. and, and that's something that I would like to hear uh, you guys discuss a little bit because with, with I'm, I'm 36 years old and Lee, I think, He's what? Are you about a year or two older than 37, me? Lee? Thirty-seven. Thirty-seven. Just a little yeah. older so than you are. You're the you're the old one out of the two of us here. But growing up, the the word Islam was associated with terror, with fear, and I I, I remember as a as a child, even uh, well, at least as a teenager, um, there was a Muslim who went to who went to school where I went, and I actually went to a private Christian school, and I remember literally being afraid of him. Um, like wondering, okay, well, you know, is, 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 is he planning an attack? And I know that that is, that is horrible and that's that stereotype, but that was the way that I was, was taught to believe, if not directly, if not overt, covert and indirectly. And so I, I want to, I want the audience and, and even I want to hear a little bit more about this because I know that y'all talk a little bit about this on your TED talk, but I want to hear about how all this came to be with with the interfaith amigos and why this really was was prompted after 9-11. I believe you you guys reached out to one another or something happened. So do you mind yeah. unpacking that a little bit? I can briefly yeah, so yeah, I can briefly start by saying that when 9-11 happened and there was so much of anger directed towards uh, all Muslims, actually, uh, as you had mentioned, because of our condition biases, the news of media. Uh, and some, you know, well-paid websites uh, that are funded to really preach uh, anger against certain uh, groups. Uh, Rabbi Ted Falcon, uh, just after 9-11, invited me to speak in his synagogue. And we liked each other. We became friends. And uh, this is a very key point because we realized uh, that our main work to overcome polarization is really to come to know the other on a human level. So we became friends, we got to know each other on a human level, our families connected, our congregations 
they began to bond with one another. We did programs together. We realized, as uh, one of you were saying, we are cousins, cousins of the same Abrahamic family. And we jokingly say, but a very, very dysfunctional Abrahamic family. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and then we realized, you know, I and Ted, Rabbi Ted realized, you know, our third cousin is missing. And that's where Brother Don comes in. So uh, I knew uh, Ted Falcon from the Seattle Christian Jewish Dialogue. And so he called me um, in April of 2002 to say that Ted and uh, he and, and Jamal and some others were planning an event to mark the first anniversary of 9-11. And uh, would I like to be part of it? But perhaps more importantly, could it be at my church? Because um, it was big enough to hold a pretty large crowd. And uh, I remember thinking two things simultaneously. I can't do one more thing. <laughs> and I can't not do this. I just yeah. can't not do it. And so I said yes. And, and we uh, planned the event and we had it at my church. And as Ted and Jamal and I were debriefing, a couple of days later, we said to each other, uh, we can't stop now. We had no clue what that meant, and we had no particular sense that we might become more visible. We just thought the three of us could get to know each other, and that was literally it. And so we started to meet weekly, which we have done for 20 years now, on Zoom now because I live in Minneapolis. I used to live in, San, in Seattle. And so um, in these meetings, uh, we, I think we each brought the intuition that if we could penetrate these barriers, something important could happen. We could reach something that I think we're calling interfaith understanding. And, uh, and so we started to do that. And we started to give programs in Seattle in various places, not really uh, without a whole lot of shape yet. I mean, we people were obviously after 9-11, there was a huge influx of interest in interfaith, what was called interfaith dialogue. And so we started speaking in, in public. And I remember I had, um, uh, after the three of us took a trip to the Middle East the first time um, in 2005. So now this is three, three years later. Um, I invited uh, Ted and Jamal to come speak at an adult education forum about our trip. This was May of 2006, maybe. And, uh, and then I thought, hey, you know, they're going to be here on Sunday. We could uh, do the sermon together. And so that was it. And then I thought, hey, um, we're going to have communion. Now what? And so I asked my colleagues, uh, my pastoral colleagues, and we agreed that we would invite Ted and Jamal to help um, to hold the bread as people came forward. Well, this is pretty unusual circumstance. And um, as I was driving to church that morning, I remember thinking, we can't just do this. I mean, I have to say something about the meaning of communion, the meaning of the sacrament, the meaning of inviting people to uh, join us and so forth, which I did. But prior to worship that day, um, one of my colleagues said to me, how are you doing? You doing okay? And I said, well, you know, I'm anxious. I want this to go well. And she said, you guys, all you have to do is stand up there together. That was a revelation. Yeah. And I realized that simply the image of the three, three guys 
three guys, um, was hopeful. And we have carried that. Uh, we have carried that. So um, anyway, long story short, we, um, I think at some point agreed that we wanted to write something. And so we, um, there was an article about us in a magazine called The Christian Century, uh, which is a liberal uh, publication. And we got our pictures on the cover. And it said we were thinking about writing a book and uh, a publisher uh, saw that and called me and said, do you have a publisher? I said, no. Long story short, um, they published our first book, which was um, Getting to the Heart of Interfaith, uh, the eye-opening, hope-filled friendship of a pastor, a rabbi, and an imam. And we were kind of off and running because at that point, the New York Times picked that up and, and uh, gave us a full-page piece in the national section and, you know, then we were invited to, you know, PBS, NBC, CBS, BBC, um, NPR, and so forth. And um, we're on the road for six, seven years, I guess, Jamal. Um, we've, I think we've figured we've done about 250 presentations. Um, oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> and yeah. And most states in the United States, but brothers, not in Oklahoma. <laughs> but otherwise, that's true. That's um, true. Most of them, and also in Japan, a couple times in Canada and Jerusalem and Bethlehem and so forth. And the Bahamas. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. <laughs> get your Hawaiian shirts. Get ready to go. Bahamas, baby. That's right. That was. Uh, you know, there's one thing I wanted to say, but brother. Uh, Don mentioned, sometimes when we get on the stage and there's a huge crowd in front of us and we're doing our program, at the end of it, I can, after the lights go down, then I can see, I see tears in people's eyes. And, it's, and after we talk to them, we realize it's not because of the brilliance of our talk. It's because their hearts have discerned that we are friends. There is hope. And, you know, they can really realize that through the conversations we've had on stage that we're really good friends, a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim. <laughs> and the fact that it is possible and it is genuine, and this is the way to overcome polarization by truly connecting at a heart level, that gave so much hope to people and they felt so touched by it. Yeah, it, it's, you know, instead of sounding like a bad joke, people realize that this is real. I mean, this is, you know, when I, uh, we, we, I think you guys joke about that too a little bit. You know, when you hear a Christian, a Jew, and a Muslim, you know, you, you almost think the next phrase is go walking into a bar or something. Yeah. And we and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> It literally you know, happened. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. as, as a Muslim, I, I, you know, I can't drink alcohol, but I, I do take root beer. Oh, there you go. There you go. (laughs) There you go. Well, that and that's something that going back to something, uh, Brother Jamal, you said earlier about your goal is not to convert people, and that's something as a Christian that Lee and I both have have really changed our views on in large part, and we've gotten a lot of criticism for that. Thankfully, we have our own businesses that we own, so we don't really. Uh, worry much about church politics. Um, we, we can just kind of go on here and talk about whatever we want to. Um, but the, the thing is, is that 
what I ultimately what I have seen, what I have experienced, and as someone who has changed so much in their own life is growth is a personal thing. And as much as you may want to change someone else, you can't do that. But I do believe that we have the ability to influence, but that we can only truly influence someone once we have their respect. And the more that we can gain someone's respect through the way we treat one another and the way that we talk to each other and even the friendships that we have, that's really where transformation and growth take place. Not that you may ever see things just like I see it or that I may never see things just the way you see it. Lee and I don't even see everything alike. But the thing is, we're able to influence one another for the better and take the best of each other and hopefully bring that out in the other. And that's really what I commend the the interfaith amigo. I was about to call you the three amigos, the interfaith amigos, that's what right, I really yes. commend yes. Uh, about what you're trying to do. Now, I w- wanted to, to kind of get back to a couple of just fundamental questions because our audience is... I would say not just primarily Christian, probably all Christians. I highly doubt there's very many uh, Muslims within our audience. There may be some listening to this. I don't know, but uh, that would, you know, depends upon how much you promote this podcast episode. But with with the Christian audience listening, especially as I have made mention, as we discussed just a few moments ago, who has been taught that uh, the, the Quran is nothing but a book of hate, and uh, Islam is something to be feared. What would you say to a Christian like that? Where, where would you begin to kind of open up that conversation? Because our audience is open-minded. They're, they wouldn't be listening to us otherwise. Yes. And so for those who really do have that concern, uh, what would you say? Where would you begin? Yes. Uh, it is something we talk about quite often myself, Brother Don and uh, Brother Ted. You know, every holy book, not just the Quran, every holy book, uh, the Christian scriptures, the uh, Eastern books, they have two kinds of verses, like Brother Don was saying, particular and universal. Particular verses are in desperate need of historical and textual context. Universal verses are timeless, placeless, and filled with wisdom. Mm -hmm. The problem is if you take a particular verse and try to advocate, preach that as a universal verse. That's a problem, number one. The other problem is what many uh, Christian right-wing websites are doing, they take a particular verse from the Quran and compare that to a universal verse (laughs) of of the Christian scriptures. You see, uh, There are many beautiful, timeless wisdom in the Quran. You know, in America, uh, did you know that the most widely read poet is an Islamic poet named Rumi, R-U-M-I? I I did not know that. Yes. Uh, uh, Is it Rumi? Uh, Another one is Hafiz. Or you might just ask the question, how is it that there are so many Islamic sages who base most of their poetry, their spiritual wisdom rooted in the Quran. What is in the Quran that so stimulates, opens the hearts of these sages that they write the most exquisite poetry like Rumi poetry or Hafiz poetry? So about these two verses I want to say about the uh, understanding of verses, uh, Rumi has a wonderful insight. He says, you know, a bee 
and a wasp. They drink from the same flower. One produces nectar, the other one produces a sting. Our every verse is simply subject to interpretation. Yeah. And how you interpret that depends on two things, your intention and your level of consciousness. You see, like I've heard my Christian friends tell me, Jamal, don't get discouraged when people say that because did you know that Christian scriptures were used to justify, for example, slavery, apartheid, even the Holocaust, the Shoah. Christian verses in the South, until recent times, they justified physical segregation of the races, which goes totally against the grain of Christianity. So a verse from any holy book can be used to justify the needs of the ego. Yeah. And, and, and if you don't mind, I want to, I want to just add a, a couple of things because a lot of Christians, when they start with that premise, they're either unaware of a lot of the passages in the Bible <laughs> um, that uh, have, have been used to justify all sorts of atrocities and especially when you get into a lot of the Old Testament text, when you get into a lot of the war narratives, and um, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways to interpret that, but they're there. And if someone just takes a straightforward reading, then obviously there that can be interpreted as a lot of hate. Um, that's why there are so many different Christian sects, and it really frustrates me to see the unfairness in how Christians oftentimes treat other religions when they just take and let's be honest most christians have never read the quran they they may have read one or two verses just like an atheist may have never read the bible they read one or two and say oh well the bible says you can't eat pork so you christians don't know what you're doing and and they there's there's really a, only a superficial understanding there's not really a intellectual engagement of whatever issue they're wanting to discuss and that has always frustrated me to see how Christians, uh, and not all Christians are like this, but some Christians, especially those more on the conservative side, want to just take one or two little snippets and and, and just paint every single Muslim that way. And I, I would dare say you don't want that done to you any more than I would want someone to take one or two snippets from the Bible are one or two groups of Christians or those who claim to be Christians and say, oh, well, Kevin must behave like that. Kevin must be okay for, you know, with the Crusades, or he must be okay with, uh, with, the, with the, the quote-unquote genocides that happened in the Old Testament, or Kevin, you know, must be okay with slavery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, that's unfair. And if, if that's unfair, and I believe that way as a Christian, that I wouldn't want to be treated that way. Well, one of the Christian tenets is tr- treat others how you want to be treated, right? And so if if that's the way I should live, then this is why it goes back to what you're saying. You have to get to know people on an individual level. What happens with religion, it seems, is that people take the worst within that religion and they make what they've seen to be the worst manifestations and try to paint with a very wide brushstroke. And Christians don't want that done to them, but yet Christians oftentimes do that unfairly to others. Here you know, there's are... one more point, uh, Brother Kevin, I want to say. Sorry, yeah. No, go, go ahead. ahead John. No, no, that's all right. Go ahead. You know, I, I was just saying that, you know, we get the Interfaith Amigos gets many invitations 
as Brother Don was saying, to travel all over the country, even overseas. And one main reason is that we do talk about where religion goes astray, you know, exclusivity, violence, unequal status of women, homophobia. But we talk, you know, we don't say these difficulties exist in your religion. <laughs> we frankly talk about those difficulties in our own religion. Mm-hmm. And not just to criticize and criticize, but to shine a higher light, to give it an interpretation that serves the common good. Anyway, Brother Don, please go ahead. Yeah, I think, um, thanks, Jamal, that the, there's um, a high level of ignorance about all religious traditions, as you suggested, Kevin. I mean, even Jamal and Ted and I don't know everything, obviously. And part of that is due to the fact that um, life is so complex right now, so chaotic, so stressful, and the rate of change is so fast that one hardly has a chance to um, to delve into something that uh, we could call religious literacy. Um, I mean, that's I mean, you could you could have religious literacy by helping people understand a few important things about each of these traditions that people don't know right now. And I think as we hear the word terrorist associated with Muslims, um, that's a good example of the need for religious literacy because the terrorist uh, application to Muslims is really, in my view, uh, the creation of Western culture. Uh, Beginning with the Treaty of Versailles after World War I, um, because prior to that, the the Arabs had been told that they would be given self-determination in the parts of the Ottoman Empire that had broken up, Um, but they did not get that. Instead, those um, territories like Syria and Lebanon, Iraq, uh, Jordan and Egypt um, were given over to the British and to the French. And so, um, you know, it's the, the idea developed among people in the Middle East that Christians were both liars and arrogant and um, had no intention of doing anything that would really help the people of the Middle East. And the irony to my mind is that at one time in human history, in Spain especially, the high water, the cultural high water was was there. These were the people who were translating the Greek writers into Arabic. And that's how we know what those things were. Um, They preserved them. They were in the library at Alexandria, Egypt. And um, so that, so so when we think that, um, as Jamal has said, that today there's a high level of of illiteracy among Muslims. At one time, uh, they were among the most learned people in the world. And the Christians were highly illiterate at that time. Um, There was also in Spain um, um, uh, several hundred years when Jews, Christians, and Muslims were really talking to each other in the way that Ted and Jamal and I have been talking to each other. Um, And so that that just shows that that can happen. But religious literacy, not the attempt to convert or to persuade, but simply to say this is what this tradition has been about. This is how this tradition has evolved. And of course, nothing is simple because there's so many aspects of 
human experience that go into what we now know as a, as a, a religious tradition. But um, uh, as we have said so many times, if we could simply get beyond the need, each tradition, we could get beyond the need to be better than and separate from, we could get to that interfaith understanding and get a high level of religious literacy that would really be the one of the best things that could happen to begin to um, to heal this troubled world. Well, but brother- Don, if I may just add one thing here, uh, there's just uh, I want to quote just two wonderful people. One is Mahatma Gandhi, who knew a lot about what it takes to create peace in a multi-religious society. He was very fond of saying. If you judge an entire religion by the behavior of some groups that we are calling terrorists, then every single religion is in deep, deep, deep trouble. That's that's the truth, yes. And the other one is by this very famous Russian dissident, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whose insight was repeated many times after 9-11. And this famous Russian writer said, you know, if only it was so simple that there are some terrible, evil terrorist people out there, and all you have to do is just separate them, isolate them, and destroy them. He says, alas, the line dividing good and evil runs through every single human heart. And who is willing to tear away a piece of his or her own heart? And that's so profound. And that's one of the things that we fail to realize is our own ignorance. You know, Brother Don, one of the things you were talking about was this this sense of, of religious ignorance that exists. And even within our own traditions, I think you alluded to this when you spoke a moment ago. You know, I'm a Christian. I was raised as an evangelical Christian my entire life. I grew up Pentecostal and converted over to the more conservative, extremely conservative churches of Christ in my uh, early 20s. And in that sense, you uh, much of the faith that Kevin and I came from was expressed within our own certainty of what we knew to be true was absolutely objectively factually true. And yet within that, we only knew and understood a very, very small sliver of what our own tradition was all about. And I think that's true with with most Christians, with most and and maybe to a lesser extent with, with, you know, within Judaism or within Islam. I don't want to speak, you know, with too broad of a brushstroke, but I know for myself, I thought I knew a lot And it's only been within the last few years, I realized just how ignorant I have been and just how little I actually do know. And if I know that little about my own tradition, then how can it be said that I know anything at all about Judaism or Islam, you know, in in that sense and recognizing my own ignorance, people don't want to do that. People don't want to recognize that, you know, that they aren't as adept as what they once is what they like to believe that they are is what they once believed that they were. And whenever you're confronted with your own ignorance, it can be a scary thing. And I think that is one of the things that does get in the way of some of these interfaith dialogues. That is one of the things that gets in the way of the conversation that can occur between various denominations within the Christian faith. And then on a much broader scale with that gets in the way of those conversations that can occur between those of differing faiths. Um, One of the things that I would like to ask you, Jamal, is 
what has your experience as a Muslim or a Muslim, I'm so sorry, as a Muslim, what has that experience been like for you? What has it been like? Did you grow up in Islam? Is that something that you have practiced your entire life? What was it like before 9-11 and what has it been like after that? And what has it been like now in, you know, some 20 years removed from that? What has your experience been like? You know, uh, I'll keep it very short. Being a Muslim, and I have traveled to many countries because my, my father was a diplomat. And so I've been to Muslim countries, I've been to Christian countries, uh, and countries of other religions also. And my upbringing is totally rooted in Islam. And I was never really self-conscious of being a Muslim uh, in, the sen- in a negative sense. When I was studying in London, I suffered racial discrimination. And then I suffered also a very vicious attack by a physical attack by what is called skinheads. Uh, but that was on the basis of my color. And I, you know, and in fact, I was uh, so anxious about the dangers of being physically insecure. I came to America as a Muslim to study in the universities here. And everything was fine uh, until 9-11. And then again, I I became conscious of being a Muslim. And I don't want to exaggerate, you know, I had difficulties in the airports, ports of entry, uh, but you know, I have strong connections. I have very fiercely loyal friends, I have resources. But what I want to convey is, I know for sure that when there is discrimination on the basis of color, or religion or culture, what it does to the individual, the minority, it creates a loss of identity, a loss of a sense of belonging. It doesn't allow me to evolve in the fullness of my being, allow me to be a a productive member of the society. And so I love that saying, a, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. When I have a pain in a part of my body, I'm using another metaphor. If I have small disturbance in a part of my body, it affects my entire body. So the irony is that when there is discrimination, there's oppression based on religion or color, not not only does it affect that individual or the group, the entire society suffers. And that is a big problem. Yes. Because we're all so interconnected. So with that experience, how has has your experience changed for the better in the last, in in the years that have gone by since then? Have you noticed a a positive change and a more accepting uh, general mentality amongst society now, as opposed to those short years after 9-11 happened or things still pretty touch and go? In my experience, uh, what, what I've observed and witnessed I think after 9-11, there has been a great outpouring of the realization that we really got to expand our religious literacy. And more importantly, uh, we have to come to know the other on a human level. We have to, what you know, in Islam is called sharing three cups of tea. Not only this polarization, which is existing now, let's say in the US, uh, besides religion, it goes now into politics. Uh, into race. And 
the great realization is that if you want to move beyond polarization, you ha we have no choice but to create a genuine environment where we truly begin to connect with the other. You know, the, the wonderful uh, story, or the wonderful insight, this universe is made out of stories, not atoms. And if you're, if you're an opposing person, an adversary, but if I really take the time with humility, with persistence to get to know you and share our stories on a human level, our differences might still remain, but now they no longer loom as a threat, number one. And number two, it seems to create the spaciousness when we can collaborate on projects of mutual interest, social justice issues, earth care. So I find after 9-11, a lot of that has happened. I would say America, the US is in the forefront of really expanding, deepening interfaith dialogue. One quick example is look at the US military, the US army. In the US army, you even have a Wiccan, that's a, you know, they, they worship nature uh, in, in a very expansive way. You have a, a, a Wiccan chaplain, besides now a number of Muslims chaplains, but even a Wiccan chaplain. So the US army, I would say is very diverse only after 9-11. Well, that's one good thing that we can say that has come from it for, for certain. <laughs> Um, what I'm wondering too, Don, is in our dialogue or the dialogue that you guys primarily had with Kevin before coming on this podcast, I know that it had been mentioned that you had spent some time abroad in some Muslim countries. What was your experience like as a Christian being in those countries? Um, yes, that's true. I, um, you know, I grew up as a Presbyterian in Illinois in a small town, actually, and then also Chicago and St. Louis and had never even been to New York uh, before the summer of 65 when on a college program, I went to Cairo and was a lifeguard at the Nile Hilton Hotel. And my two colleagues there were from the Sudan and they were Muslims. And five times a day, they would go down in the locker room, put a towel down and say their prayers. And they didn't speak much English and my Arabic was pretty limited, but we managed, I think I managed to find out some things about how they understood their lives and so forth that was really eye-opening and enormously um, uh, it expanded my universe and I could I could begin to feel that um, they were basically after the same thing I was um, and uh, that really that was really wonderful and after I left Cairo I flew to Beirut to um, to have an, uh, an experience of seeing a private school in Sidon, Lebanon, uh, because I was thinking I might uh, apply for a job teaching English there after I graduated, which would have been the next year. Uh, I was heading for my senior year. And, um, you know, I, I, I fly out of the desert to uh, Beirut and I get off the plane and I look out one side and there's the Mediterranean and the other side of these green mountains. And I'm thinking, I just crossed the river. You know, this is the, this is the promised land. And I'm doing the best I can to um, put all this in some kind of uh, spiritual context, I guess. But I was driven up into the mountains above Beirut and um, 
uh, was staying with some friends and they said, take a walk around, you know, see, it's really pretty up here. And so I walked around and I came to this promontory and I could see the entire universe from this place. I mean, there was Beirut down below and of course the Mediterranean, uh, as far as I could see. But it was, uh, it was kind of uh, a, a glimpse of something beyond the particular in my life. It was a glimpse of the, uh, I think the word eternal probably be too great, but certainly a glimpse of something that was universal. Um, that there was, um, there was a framework of, of goodness, of compassion, oneness, unconditional love that was framing everything if I could just open my eyes to see it. And, um, and so uh, when we, uh, uh, um, Judy and I got married then and we, we uh, went to Sidon and, you know, it, it, this is a Muslim town, Sidon, Lebanon. Um, there are Christians there, but not many. And the school where I was teaching was founded by Christian missionaries, but they're mostly Muslims there not just from Lebanon, but also Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, um, Iraq, various other, Jordan, various other places. And I really began to feel the rhythms of what it feels like uh, to be a Muslim. I mean, just beginning. I mean, obviously I, I began to feel the energy in a phrase like inshallah, which means if God wills it, you know, in Shabla um, or Alhamdulillah, um, thanks be to God. I began to feel the energy, the positive energy in phrases like that. And so I think that helped to um, create a kind of a platform um, that, um, that I was on when uh, I met Ted and Jamal. And it kind of snapped into the open, you know, and... Um, so I, uh, it was a great blessing for me to have those experiences. Um, and it was a great blessing to start out married life that way too, because that's something I share with Judy and so forth. Well, being okay. able to share something like that is absolutely, it's a massive blessing. And what's so interesting to me is to hear you tell your story because so often you hear in terms of these Muslim countries that you go to that you, and, and I'm sure that there are probably some that are dangerous because of the, the, you know, some of the things that have occurred there and, and in other places, but all too often they're all lumped in together. And the idea that exists in the minds of so many is if we go to a, to a country in which Muslim Islam rather is the dominant religion, well then that's just a dangerous place to be. And you're, you're speaking of just a wonderful experience and a positive experience that you had in that place. And that, in my mind, should go a long way in, in helping people to realize that one of the things you just said is that we're all seeking after the same thing. We're all seeking to grow. We're all seeking the pursuit of that meaning within life. And we're taking different paths to get there, but we're pursuing that meaning. And that's, that's something we're all doing. And Kevin, you had something you were, you were going to chime in with. Go ahead, brother. Well, I was going to say that I'm sure that this is a process that when we talk about having interfaith dialogue with mm -hmm. one another, that this isn't something that just is going to happen overnight, um, especially for, for those of us who were trained 
to not really see the other as the other, uh, as, as an actual person, but as just someone who is different from me, someone who is almost viewed as the enemy in a, in a lot of ways. In fact, in the type of Christianity I grew up in, anyone who didn't view the Bible and interpret the Bible the same way I did, it wasn't just people who denied uh, the, the Bible being from God or, or denied some of the tenets of f- fundamental Christianity, but it went well beyond that, that if someone didn't interpret the Bible like I did, if they didn't go to the same church that I went to, if they didn't worship the exact same way, then they were the enemy. And so it's taken a long time for for me, and, and Lee and I really both have talked about that. This is why we started the podcast, because this is how we really get our education now, <laughs> is by letting other people come on and share their journeys and stories and teach us because this isn't something that just happens overnight. And and so I would assume that there are some stages. So I just wanted to really open this up to to both of you guys to explain a little bit. Since y'all have been doing this for so many years, what are what have you seen as the progression, the stages of interfaith dialogue? And how can one be taken from a place of closed-mindedness to openness to where they may not agree with everyone that they come in contact with. Of course, we know that's not a reality. We're always going to see the world differently. Not everyone's not going to see things the same way, Uh, but how, what are those stages and what do they look like and how can someone eventually grow from that closed mindedness to open mindedness? Don't you want to take the first three? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, uh, Yeah. The great question, Kevin. Thank you. We, you know, when we started talking, we didn't say let's find the stages of interfaith dialogue. We had no idea. <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing, and I, I think sometimes we'd say we still don't. But we did stumble on uh, what we now call the, what we call now the six stages of interfaith dialogue. The first is simply getting to know the other. Getting to know the other is a human being, not uh, framed by any particular religious tradition, but who, what, what are your likes? What are your dislikes? Where have you been? What's your story? You know, um, we, we tend to slam people into stereotypes so quickly if they, if we start arguing, especially about, uh, religious traditions and so forth. So that is really crucial. And of course, that's true for anything when you're trying to overcome that, that, uh, us against them, uh, tribalism, uh, uh, sort of approach, getting to know the other. And then we recommend, having done that, that we try to identify the core teaching of whatever gives us purpose and meaning. You know, in our case, of course, Christianity and Islam and Judaism. And, 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 and so talking about that over a period of time, um, Ted identified oneness from Judaism, um, and he translates one of these verses. Um, um, let's see, how does this go, Jamal? The eternal is our God. The eternal is one. And then he says, it doesn't mean there's just one God. It means there's just one, and we're all part of the one which leads to a very important idea that of what we call the interconnectedness of all being, which is something that tribalism obscures. Yes. And so we, we hold that up as a value. Then in Christianity, we identify unconditional love 
as the core teaching. Uh, and there is, I mean, the word grace is supposed to mean that, but we don't think of loving without conditions when we hear the word grace necessarily. Um, and then in um, Islam, uh, compassion, uh, which is uh, so, which is a framer for almost all of the chapters of the Quran. Um, and um, where was I going with this? <laughs> oh, the stages. Yeah, number three, yeah. Yeah, so, so um, I think we, it's important to say that these, this is what everything grows from. Now, people will say, well, what's the difference between a core value and a, and a core teaching? Well, core values are things like justice, reconciliation, forgiveness, and so forth that flow from those core, core teachings. And we feel that's an important distinction to make. Then the third stage is um, an invitation uh, based on these first two things to think about the differences between the verses and practices of each of our traditions, uh, which are consistent with our core teachings and the verses and practices which are inconsistent with our core teachings. So that we're, you know, we're inviting people to move into a place of critical thinking and feel good about the invitation to do that. And what we feel is that the places where the, we find inconsistencies are places where the verses are really the product of egocentrism rather than spiritual wisdom. In other words, they're not really concerned with the common good. Yeah. And, and spiritual wisdom really is concerned with the common good. So those are the first three. Jamal. And the fourth one, by now, hopefully there is a, a human bonding, uh, some trust. So the fourth one is the capacity to enter into more difficult conversations, not to gloss over them. Like, you know, one criticism of interfaith gatherings is they're so infrequent, especially of Abrahamic interfaith gatherings, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, that when they gather in these infrequent times, the behavior is absurdly nice. <laughs> <laughs> but once they go home, Muslims become terrorists, mm. Christians become liars, Jews become occupiers, unless they have gotten together and become friends. Then you can enter into difficult conversations. Like the three of us, we've gotten into the difficult conversation about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You see, all over the country we've traveled, and there are many Abrahamic groups. They do very well ah, until there's a crisis in the Middle East. And because they haven't gone through the stages, they just stop right there. Yeah. But we continue our conversation. And let me tell you, there have been groups in America that have continued these conversations, as a result of which some incredible, fruitful organizations have developed Jewish Voices for Peace that is having an effect on public policy is a result of having difficult conversations between Jews, Muslims, and Christians. Okay, the fifth one is, you know, if we have done this work together, we have become friends, you're a Christian, uh, Jew, Hindu, uh, Buddhist, whatever, then we begin to realize that really all religions are paths to a shared universal. 
I'm a Muslim. I'm rooted in Islam. But I know from my own experience, my own being, that if I, as a Muslim, am open to the beauty of other traditions, other religions, this waters my Islamic roots, makes me a better Muslim, a more developed human being, which is why we say interfaith, real interfaith work, is not about conversion. It is not about conversion. It is about becoming a more complete, developed human being. Okay, the last one, and this is the subject of our third book, the critical need to do, doesn't matter whether you have a religion or you have no religion, to do, let's call it spiritual practices, to increase the capacity for oneness, unconditional love, compassion. Two quick examples. You know, I was on a panel on racism and this African-American professor was saying, did you know every 28 hours, an African-American is being killed by state-sponsored violence. Every 28 hours, we were quite shocked. He said, that's not the real problem. The real problem is the African-American is being murdered a billion times with a B, B for boy, a billion times a day. We said, how? He said, by those conditioned bias and prejudice, prejudices we have of the other, the thoughts that go through a person's mind. You know, they're lazy people, they're violent, they're this, they're drain on the economy. That is a real problem. And how do you deal with that? Legislation can help, education can help. It needs spiritual practices. One more example, you know, is a wonderful um, scientific advisor to President Carter. His, his insight has become uh, viral. Gus Paith, I think is his name. He said, for 30 years, I've always thought the biggest environmental problems were loss of biodiversity, climate change, ecosystem collapse. And with 30 years of good science, we could take care of it. But now I've realized the biggest environmental problems are not loss of biodiversity, climate change, ecosystem collapse. The biggest environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And science cannot take care of it. We need practices. So the last point we make is that is a critical need for us to do the work. You know, we, we talked about our, about our holy books. We have little spiritual literacy. A bigger problem is do we live them? Yes, that's huge. That is so huge because it's easy to, well, I should say it's easier to pick up a book, to read it, to parse through it, to extract knowledge and extrapolate knowledge and to internalize that knowledge and then, re then regurgitate that knowledge to memorize the books of the Bible or to, you know, memorize certain memory verses of the Bible or the Quran or, or whatever else. But does it do you any good if you don't put those universals that we've talked about on this, on this particular episode into practice? Because it doesn't do me any good to read what Jesus said about loving your neighbor as yourself and loving your enemy and praying for those who spitefully use you and persecute you and seek to do you harm. It does me no good to memorize those verses if I don't, in fact, love my neighbor as myself 
whether that neighbor is my Jewish neighbor, my Christian neighbor, my Muslim neighbor, my gay neighbor, my straight neighbor, my transgender neighbor, whatever it may be, it doesn't do me any good to memorize that passage if I'm not putting that into practice in my own life. And if I'm just reading that and I'm proclaiming myself to be a Christian and I'm not putting it into practice in my own life, well, then these other people are going to see that. And whenever they see that hypocrisy manifest itself within me, it's going to cast a pall on what Jesus was really all about. And I, I think that's absolutely huge, Brother Jamal. I appreciate you sharing that for sure. Well, I know we're, we're getting close to the end of our time together. I know that um, this has been a, a really good conversation. And in the time that we have left, um, Brother Jamal, Brother Don, I wonder if there's anything that either of you would like to add to the conversation. If there's any critical, crucial point that you would like to get across to our audience, to our listeners, as it relates to Islam as a faith, what would you want to say to someone who is maybe wanting to learn more about it? Maybe, you know, what's a good place that they may start in, in learning more about the Quran and learning more about Islam? Um, what would you want to share with somebody if you only had a very limited amount of time to do it? If, if there's anything else you'd like to add. Thank you so much, uh, Brother Lee. You know, I want to share the fact that in the Quran, there's a verse that says, those who are closest to you in love, those who are closest to you in love are the Christians, especially some monks among them who are such pious people. That's one thing. Secondly, I want you to know that in the Quran, Jesus, peace be upon him. And by the way, no Muslim will utter the word Jesus or any prophet without immediately saying, peace be upon him. So Jesus, peace be upon him, is considered in Islam, not as a son of God, as a very great prophet. In fact, he's called the spirit of God, the intimate you know, spirit of God. And Muslims believe in the virgin birth. And, you know, we jokingly say that, I jokingly say that as I've traveled the country, talked to Christians, I am convinced more Muslims than Christians believe in the virgin birth. <laughs> you're, you're probably right about that, brother. <laughs> and then, you know, Jesus, if I look at the Quran objectively as a Muslim, he is incredibly honored in the Quran. I might even go to limb and say more than any other prophet, although the Quran says, make no distinction between them. And how do I, why do I say that? Number one, virgin birth. No other prophet had that. And the Quran says, yes, it is possible. God just says, kun, kun means be, it happens. Number two, the Quran says, Jesus never died. So what happened to Jesus? According to the Quran, Jesus was so forlorn, sad about what happened to him, his betrayal, that God out of compassion, out of mercy, had Jesus raised up to God's bosom. He never died. Every other prophet died. Third point, who will return to earth before the day of judgment to create a reign of peace and justice? It's not Muhammad, it's not Moses, it's not Abraham. The Islamic tradition says it is Jesus who will come back. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's one, and I, I want to give Brother Don a chance. So uh, one more thing I want to say, Mary, peace be upon Mary, is highly revered in the Quran. In fact, 
there's an entire chapter in the Quran, chapter 19, all about Mary. There is more about Mary in the Quran than all the Christian scriptures put together. And Mary is called the holiest of the holy among women. And there are many more things I want to say about Mary, who is highly, highly revered, especially in Islamic spirituality. But I'll stop there. I'll give it to Brother Don. Oh, thanks, Jamal. Uh, let me just, Jamal, what one book would you say you can think about this, uh, would you recommend? I mean, you had, I asked you this question 20 years ago, and you recommended Reza Aslan's book, uh, No yes, God. No God, but, yeah. No God, yeah. but God. And then, of course, I become more selfish. I, I recommend my own book. <laughs> <laughs> hey, go ahead and throw a plug out for your book, Brother Jamal. We yeah, don't mind shameless information. I plug in my books every every week. So, no, you're you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, it has done very well. It's called Spiritual Gems of Islam. Spiritual. If you will, send, send us a link too, um, and we'll be able to link all this together. So when the when we post okay. the episode, all of those links will, will be on there where okay. people can easily access it. Thank you, Brother Don, for the opportunity, but please go ahead. Yeah, right. <laughs> just just a, a quick footnote to um, what Jamal has said. I think that what we three have discovered, um, and we're not, you know, we, we're not the pioneers here, but we have discovered that the things that appear to divide us uh, constitute a very thin facade over uh, the, the vast bulk of human experience. And one of the great, one of the most fulfilling experiences available to human beings is to discover that there's something much deeper than, than that facade that we are really very much the same. Uh, we all want the same kinds of things. We want to have hope, we want to have safety, we want to have fulfillment. Um, we want to be able to grow spiritually, physically, emotionally, and so forth. Uh, and um, it's, a, it's a kind of imprisonment when we think that our tradition is the only one that needs to stay separate and that it's the best. Um, it's a kind of imprisonment because it keeps us from, from penetrating that facade and discovering the true joy of what it means to be a human being on this planet. Um, and so I think that um, uh, if, you know, if a Islamic family moves in next to you, there's a great opportunity to, to get to know people, you know, and you'll find out they're human beings just like you are. Fantastic. Well, Let me I want just one. One more point, if I would like to make please, if I could. please do. Yes, go right ahead. It's very critical. I want the Christian listeners to uh, know this. Several verses in the Quran in the say to Prophet Muhammad, Oh, Muhammad, there were many prophets who came before you, and please make no distinction between them. There's nothing revealed to you that has not been revealed to all the other prophets. And by the way, the most mentioned prophet in the Quran is Moses. And of course, Abraham and others have mentioned also. But the last thing I wanted to say was, this is a very powerful verse, which for me sums up this program from God to Muhammad saying, oh, Muhammad, tell the Jews and the Christians that your God and their God is the same God. Is that same one God. Come to an agreement and tell them it is the God of all of humanity that is mentioned very specifically to tell the Jewish and the Christian brothers and sisters, those who are non-Muslims. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
Absolutely. Well, Brother Jamal, it has been a real delight to have you on the program. Brother Donald, it's been wonderful to have you here as well. I know Kevin and I have enjoyed this conversation. I know I can speak for him whenever I say yeah. this. We appreciate your time so much. We appreciate the work you're doing so much. And and just thank you from the bottom of our hearts for taking time out of your lives and out of your schedules to come on our little program and to and to speak with us about Islam and what we can learn from our Muslim uh, brothers and sisters or cousins, if some may prefer that term. Um, but in any case, we're we're eminently and immensely thankful for for the work you guys have done and for coming on our show. Uh, to our listeners, we thank all of you. We love all of you, and we appreciate all of the feedback you guys give us and the messages you send to us, the words of encouragement, the questions, all of that. We love hearing from you, so if you would like to hear from us, or, or rather, we would like to hear from you. If you'd like to reach out and contact us, shoot us an email. We love hearing from you guys. Our email address is always linked in our show notes. Um, join our conversation on Facebook and our uh, conversation in our group. We would love to have you on there as well. Uh, give us that five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use to consume this show. And please tell your friends and loved ones and neighbors and even your enemies about it because we all could stand to grow a little closer together and to love each other a little bit better. So thank you all very much. We bid you all a good night.